Christianity Today published an article by Timothy George. And beside this article is a cartoon, a cartoon which uh, illustrates the title of this article. In this cartoon, there are three fish, but they are unusually unusual looking fish. First of all, these fish have human faces. And they're swimming through the water towards a baited hook that's dangling in the water. But what is at the end of the hook is not a nice, juicy piece of worm, for those of you who are fishermen here and fisherwomen. No, it is not a a juicy piece of worm that these three fish are swimming towards. Rather, there is a little sign dangling from the edge of the hook. And on the sign, it reads, Jesus is near. Jesus is near. Now, the cartoon, I believe, effectively depicts and summarizes the thinking of many regarding Christians. For there are those who perceive Christians as gullible people who would swallow anything and particularly the message of Christ's return. But whatever the world thinks regarding our belief in the coming of the Lord, whether they think it is because we are gullible or that we are simply escapists seeking to escape the harshness of life, the theme of Christ's return is fundamental to the Christian faith. It is part of that Christological triad that Christ died, that Christ rose, and that Christ is coming again. James Montgomery Boyce tells us that out of the 260 chapters of the New Testament, the coming of Christ receives attention some 318 times. But I'm suggesting to you that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a minor crater in biblical theology. It is at the very heart of the Christian new good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is coming. This theme appears here in Luke in chapter 17. The first 10 verses contain a cluster of sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter, eight, chapter 17 verses 1 to 10, Jesus begins by warning against causing one of his little children to stumble. He encourages the disciples to pursue the path of forgiveness. And when the disciples request that Jesus should increase their faith, our Lord tells them that it is not the quantity of faith that matters, but the quality of faith. So that if they have faith even as small as a mustard seed, but were to speak 
to the mulberry tree that it be uprooted and replanted in the sea, it would occur. Our Lord Jesus, then in the verses 11 to 19, having told them that they ought to live in humility and remember that they are servants, and when they have done their work for the Lord to say that we are unworthy servants, he then heals and Luke narrates the healing of the ten leper as the ten lepers as the Lord Jesus Christ impresses upon them the need for gratitude that there should be gratitude for the grace of God but in verses 20 to 37 we have this theme of the coming of the Lord or what we call the parousia in fact the parousia the term parousia is a Greek term that appears in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, for instance. It simply means coming, the arrival, the coming. And so when I talk about the coming of the Lord or the parousia of the Lord, I am speaking of the same thing. These verses, verses 20 to 37, address the parousia, the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that Jesus says with regard to his second coming is that his coming at the end of the age to consummate the reign of God will be visible. That's the first thing that we need to know as we read these verses. The coming of Christ at the end of the age to consummate the reign of God will be visible. This occurs then here in chapter 17 and verses 20 and following, particularly verse 24. Our Lord's central message as he travels on the way, as he inches closer and closer to Jerusalem, has been the theme of the kingdom of God. He has been dealing with the reign of God, the spiritual reign of God. He has also been dealing with the, with the requirements for discipleship. What? should a disciple of Christ do? How should he live? What should he be like? Our Lord has been addressing these themes. Now as he travels towards Jerusalem, the Pharisees who are journeying with him, who are there in the crowd, ask our Lord Jesus Christ about the timing of the coming of the kingdom. You see that in verse 20, for they said, when now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Our Lord has been speaking about the kingdom of God, and they wanted to know when was the kingdom of God going to arrive? When was God's spiritual reign going to dawn upon the world? These Pharisees were of the impression that the kingdom of God was a future reality. That there was a, a time coming when God's powerful inbreaking would occur. God would crush the enemy and vindicate his people. That is how they perceive the kingdom. And now they're asking the Lord, now you've been speaking about the kingdom of God. When is this going to arrive? And our Lord emphasizes to them that the kingdom of God must be first of all seen as a present reality. That it is not about looking over here and looking over there for the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has already come and is 
within you. Now, this, this language of within you does not necessarily mean within their hearts, but means among them. And what our Lord was indicating is that he, by his very presence, has brought the kingdom of God near. That in his person and work, the spiritual reign of God has already been inaugurated. God's saving power was being displayed and people were being saved and they were entering under God's reign. Our Lord, having told them that the kingdom of God is present in his person, then tells, turns to the disciples in verse 21 and begin to point out that the kingdom of God, though it is present, there is a future reality. What, what New Testament scholars talk about the now and the not yet. The present of God, God's kingdom is now, is even right now, people are being saved, entering the kingdom of God, but there is this future element to the kingdom of God. It is yet future. And so our Lord Jesus Christ now begins to address in verse 22 the future aspect of his kingdom. And he says to the disciples that the day will come when they will desire to see one of his days. They will desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ and they will not see it. Why? Because our Lord would, be, would return to heaven and they would die before he returns. But he tells them in verse 23, and they will say to you, look here, look there, do not go after them or follow them. There are those people who are going to claim that Christ has come and they're going to say he can be found over here. Or he can be found over there. And our Lord is saying, you are not to follow them. Why? There you have it in verse 24. The verse begins with gar. For, explanatory. For, as the lightning that flashes out of one part on the heaven shines to the other part on the heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to consummate the reign of God will be visible. That is what our Lord makes clear to them. That when he comes, they will not need to wonder whether he's found over there or is found over there. That rather, there will be no doubt. His coming will be obvious. All will see him. And his coming is compared to the shining of lightning. That's to suggest that the coming, his coming, will be gloriously visible. This, this imagery of lightning flashing across the sky refers, implies the glory with which Christ would come. Luke has another passage in Luke chapter 21, in the Olivet Discourse, where he talks about the end time. Uh, he separates these two eschatological passages chapter 17 and chapter 21 where other writers joined them but in chapter 21 particularly verses 5 to 38 Luke speaks of the signs that would precede the coming of Christ he talks about the activities of false messiahs in verse 8 he talks in verses 9 to 11 of widespread distress caused by wars and natural disasters. These will precede his coming. He talks in verses 12 and 13 about the persecution of Christians as the, as the coming of Christ draws closer. There will be many persecutions for believers. He talks in verses 14 to 18 that even within one's own family there will be persecution because parents will betray children. 
and loved ones and friends will betray others who are dear to them. But he encourages them to be constant so that they may possess their souls, that they may gain eternal life. They are to be persevering that they might gain eternal life in verse 18. We see that before his coming, there is the fall of Jerusalem predicted, verses 20 to 24. And then he says that Christ will come with great display, with great display in, in the heavens itself. And then he writes in verse 27, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So that when our Lord Jesus Christ comes, he will come on a cloud. He will come with brilliant light. He will come as a king who comes with a heavenly retinue in blazing light and in glory. You see, this is no secret coming. Nobody has to ask, is Christ here or not? Everybody will understand because he's coming in glory, in brilliant light. His coming then will be a glorious coming. His coming will be not only gloriously visible, it will be universally visible. The mention of lightning flashing from one side of the heavens to the other side is also intended to rule out any notion of a secret coming that all who have eyes will be able to see. The Apostle John refers to this fact that when our Lord comes, it will be universally visible. Not only will it be gloriously visible, but universally visible. And you find that, for instance, in Revelation 1 verse 7. No secret coming. No secret rapture. Behold, he's coming with clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 1 verse 7. He's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. They don't need to listen to people say, oh, come over here or go over there. Christ is to be found in this location or that location. He says, he's coming like lightning that flashes across the sky. His coming is universally visible. And thirdly, his coming is not only gloriously visible and universally visible, but it will be personally visible. Luke states that as the sun, or like lightning flashes out under heaven to one part, so also, he says, will the Son of Man be in his day? In verse 24. You notice he says, it is a Son of Man who will come in his day, that is, in the end time. It is the Son of Man who will come. And this expression, this title that is used of Jesus, Son of Man, is an ambiguous term. It has a double function. On one hand, it, it reveals, and on the other hand, it conceals. Ezekiel, the prophet, God referred to him, Son of Man. Over and over in the book of Ezekiel, you see this reference to Ezekiel. God, when God speaks to him, he says, Son of Man. It speaks of his humanity. And our Lord Jesus Christ refers to himself as Son of Man, often to point to his humanity. But Son of Man also reveals his divinity. And when our Lord speaks of himself coming as the Son of Man, like lightning flashing across the sky, 
he's harking back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, where Daniel saw, we are told, the Son of Man. And let me read for you this well-known passage in Daniel 7. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Our Lord is coming, and he's coming personally. He's coming as the Son of Man whom Daniel foresaw in the Old Testament. In fact, this theme that Christ will come visibly and that he will come bodily or personally receives emphasis over and over in the New Testament. You find, for instance, in the book of Acts, under the first chapter of Acts and verse 11, when Jesus was taken up from amongst the disciples, they stood there gazing up into heaven. And then two men, two angelic figures appeared among them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He was taken up bodily by a cloud into heaven and he will come bodily on a cloud to take his people home. He's coming and his coming, his coming will be visible because it will be personal. No invisible coming, no coming in spirit, but coming in body. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You notice what Paul does. Paul says our Lord is not only coming visibly, but he's coming audibly. So that, so that he's coming with a lot of noise. So much noise that even the dead will be raised. And so the argument that is placed here before them, before his disciples, is that he's coming. His coming will be glorious and universal and personal. Our Lord, however, continues in verse 25 to indicate that, that before he comes, he must suffer. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the generation. But prior to his coming in glory, he will have to take the road of the cross because suffering precedes glory. He must be crucified. He must be rejected by his nations. And only after that will he receive his people. Will he come in glory? And that is the same for us. You see, the path to glory for the believer leads to suffering. When God wants to elevate us and to bless us, he leads us along the path of suffering. It is through many tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you are a believer, know this. And if you are suffering this morning, know this. This is the way to glory. There is no other way. There are no shortcuts. So we see then in these, first 20, in, in these verses, verses 24 and 25, we see 
that our Lord's coming to consummate the reign of God will be visible. But there is a second point that is made regarding the coming of the Lord. And here it is. That Christ's parousia at the end of the age to consummate the reign of God will be sudden. It will be visible. It will be sudden. This then is the heart of what we read in verses 26 to 30. Our Lord says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the, in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given into marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? Apocalypse. When the Son of Man is revealed. What's the point? The point is simple. That his coming will be sudden. He describes life as it was in the days of Noah, as described in Genesis chapter 6. People ate and drank and they were marrying giving children into marriage and taking children into marriage. What is he talking about eating and drinking and marrying? He's simply saying that life in the days of Noah was ordinary. It was in the ordinariness of the times that they were destroyed. There was nothing unusual about the days of Noah. There were no telltale signs. There were no premonitions of danger. People were going about their business as usual. They were eating, they were drinking. That's what we do. They were getting married. And he says, until that day, until that day when the floods came, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They didn't really pay much attention to him. They probably thought the guy was off his rockers. They probably thought there's something wrong with this fellow. He was definitely out of step with his generation. He kept on year after year preaching. They rejected him. And suddenly, the heavens opened and the ground opened. And every single living creature and individual apart from the animals that were in the ark and the eight who belonged to Noah, every other person died. So will the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus reinforces, and I think you need to understand, there are two illustrations that he uses to reinforce the same point. And whenever the Bible says the same thing twice, it is there for you and for me to take note because it is serious. Our Lord Jesus gives another illustration of the suddenness with which he will come. He says it was the same in the days of Lot. Genesis chapter 19 describes the destruction of Sodom. And Jesus says in those days, people ate and they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. 
What was he saying? He was saying that these were ordinary days. This was an ordinary time. People were involved in eating and drinking. They were conducting business. They were buying things. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. So they were, they, they were, they were building businesses and careers and homes. They were doing what normal people do. It's, in fact, this description here about eating and drinking and buying and selling do not refer to the wickedness of Sodom. Our Lord is not, in, is not interested here in pointing out the wickedness of Sodom. He's just simply saying the people in Sodom and Gomorrah were going about life as usual. It was an ordinary day when, when Lot went out of Sodom and God rained fire and brimstone from heaven. I know that archaeologists and others think that what occurred there in Sodom was a volcanic eruption where, of course, the lava spewed into the air and came down, whether it was a deliberate act of miracles, act of God by sending fire from heaven, or it was by volcanic eruption, the point of the matter is they were all destroyed. Except Lot and his children. It is pointing to the suddenness. They were living ordinary lives, self-centered lives, neither thinking about God, or pleasing him. They may, they may have been deist for all were concerned. So while they would have believed in God, they really didn't think he was interested in what they were doing. And in the, in the ordinariness of life, there comes a dramatic intervention, an abrupt end to life as they knew it, because God intervened. So will they coming of the Lord be. It will be sudden. It will be dramatic. Notice what he says. He says, furthermore, even so will it be the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 30. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. What is he saying? This is not merely our Lord advising people that when I come, don't make preparation. What he's saying is this, that his coming will be so stark, so dramatic, so abrupt, that there will be no possibility of preparing oneself. One will not be able to run back if he were on his roof. And of course, you know that in Palestine, the roofs in those days were flat roofs. People would often sit there, it was cooler. They would not have a time to run downstairs and to grab a few of their household possessions. Two men are in the field. They will not have a time to run back home to get ready. Where they stand, they will answer. There will be no possibility of preparation. There will be no possibility of change. And it is in this context then that he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Here was a woman who was wedded to the world. A woman who we are told she looked back. But we need to know that, that it isn't that Lot's wife merely looked back, but that she looked back lovingly and longingly at Sodom. That this was a woman who was tied to the world. A woman 
who loved the world. A woman who wanted to be part of that world. And just like Sodom was overthrown, so she was overthrown and she became a monument of disobedience. Remember Lot's wife. And what our Lord is saying is this, his coming will be so sudden that, it must, that one must be, must be very careful that one is not wedded to this life. Because if one is wedded to this life, then he or she will become like Lot's wife. He will become a monument. He a monument to disobedience when God's judgment overthrows that individual. It goes on to say that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. That if one loves the world and seeks to safeguard his life by the things of the world, he will lose eternal life. If one, however, lives loosely to this world and lives in commitment to Jesus Christ and in the process loses his life, he will gain eternal life in the hereafter. Remember Lot's wife. Do not seek to safeguard your life for the things of the world because you can never ever secure eternal life by being wedded to the world and the things of the world. Two points. Two simple points about the coming of the Lord. First, his coming will be visible. Second, his coming will be sudden. But our Lord makes in these closing verses of Luke 17, particularly in verses 34 to 37, our Lord makes one more point about his coming. And that his coming, thirdly, to consummate the reign of God will divide. His coming will divide. It will divide the righteous from the unrighteous. He says, I tell you, in that night there will be two. Many translations put men because the two is in the masculine gender. But it does not necessarily mean that there will be two men. They just could refer to a man and his wife. But it says, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding. They will be crushing grain at the mill one will be taken and the other left two men will be in the field one will be taken and the other left verse 36 here two men in the field is not found in many translations but you see the point the point our lord makes at least in two places about the two in the bed and the two grinding again reinforces the point that his coming will separate, will divide. His coming is not only going to be visible, not only will his coming be sudden, but his coming will divide. There will be a great separation. And this is not a secret separation. I recall the first time I ever saw one of those Left Behind movies, I was shocked. I was amazed. I was upset. But I was all of that together. We were in Kissimmee, Florida. Sunday morning, went from, well, we such an evening, we spent our whole time going through the newspaper trying to find a good church to go to hear the word of God preach. Got to this church on Sunday morning, conservative Baptist, and you know we, we are conservatives, right? So this conservative Baptist church, thought, yeah, this is where I need to be this Sunday morning. And on comes the screen and on comes this movie. 
Well, I won't give you all of the terrible details of it, but I, this fellow is in a plane with his wife, and they're flying. The pilot takes off, disappears. The husband disappears, leaving his clothes. I don't know why he was wrapped up without his clothes, but, but he, his clothes is, on, is on, the, on, the, on the chair, on the seat beside his wife, but he's gone. And that was the entire hour of the movie, left behind, secretly, taken away. This verse, two, will be in one bed, one taken, two grinding at the mill, one taken, is not speaking about a secret rapture. You know that because back in verse 24, we are told his coming will be like lightning, the flash of lightning in the sky. It will be seen by all. What, is, what our Lord is indicating is that when he comes, his coming will divide people, even those who are closest even those who are belonging to the same household, man and his wife, even those who are in the same business working together, there will be a parting of the way and a parting for eternity. The New Testament hints at this, in, at least in the Gospels. You see that, for instance, in Mark 13, 26, where we are told by Mark that they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds. From the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of the heaven. That when he comes, our Lord is going to call those whom God has chosen from eternity to be his own. He's going to gather them up. Gather them out of the world. Take them from amongst those who are unbelievers. That same idea of separation. becomes part of Paul's explanation of the end times or when the Lord comes, the parousia. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 18 to 18. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Here's the authority on which we say this, by God's word, by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. At the coming of the Lord, the believing dead will rise first. It says nothing about the unbelieving dead. And those who are believing Christians who are alive at the coming of the Lord will with those who have been raised from the dead, they will be caught up together. Luke uses the term, they will be taken. Paralambano, they will be received. One, two are in the bed, one will be paralambano, one will be received. But Paul says, that they will be arousal, they will be seized, grasped, snatched away. What he's talking about is that when our Lord comes, his coming, yes, will be definitive. It will part humanity in two. That those who love him and those who long for his appearance will be separated from unbelievers and separated forever. We live in a world with unbelievers. Men who blaspheme the name of the Lord, who do not love God. But let us be very clear that our companionship in this world 
is for a limited time. The day comes when the Lord will separate the righteous from the wicked and it will happen when he comes. That's our Lord's point. And so there are three simple points that our Lord makes regarding his coming. His coming will be visible, it will be sudden, and his coming will divide humanity. I wonder this morning if our Lord were to come right now. No time to say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. No time to make any spiritual preparation. He just were to arrive right now. I wonder on which side of the divide would you find yourself? Would he seize you to be with him? Or would he leave you behind to be part of the wicked whom he will judge and condemn? Where would you be? My friends, this passage demands reflection. And the first thing I think that the passage would have us do is that you and I must seize this moment. The Jews of Jesus' day thought that the kingdom of God was entirely future. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is present. The saving reign of God has come in Christ. That they were to make use of this moment. They were talking and longing and looking for a future kingdom. The Lord says, look, the kingdom has already in one sense come now. And now is the moment you must enter. The Greek has two main words for time. The first is chronos, which speaks of the succession of moments so that seconds proceed into minutes and minutes into hours and hours into days and so on. There's a succession of moments. That's chronos. But the Greek also uses another term for time. And that term is kairos. It speaks of this present decisive moment. It speaks of the moment of significant opportunity. And our Lord Jesus says the kingdom of God has come in this kairos, in this decisive moment. You are to ensure that you are part of the kingdom of God. And I want to challenge you today. You must force your way into the kingdom of God. You must, whatever you do, insist that you are saved. You must batter down the door of heaven. You must overcome every spiritual obstacle. You must turn from every sin, but you must do all that you must do all so that you enter into the kingdom of God. You must cry out to him, Lord, save me. You must plead with God to have mercy upon you because this is the critical moment. This is the, the kairos of God. This is the hour of opportunity. Are you saved? The good news is that while you are listening to my voice, all you simply need to do is to say to God in your heart, you don't need to come to the altar. All you need to do is where you are to say, God, forgive me for my sins. And to then entrust yourself to Jesus Christ by faith taking hold of him by faith, depending upon his death on the cross as final payment for your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You must take and make use of this, this, this moment, this critical moment, this kairos of God. But secondly, those of us who are Christians in light of the coming of the Lord, 
must be prepared. The motto of the Boy Scout is be prepared. Christ will come suddenly and he will come without warning. You will have no time to prepare after his arrival. You are not to be like people in Noah's generation or in Lot's generation who lived for the world and lived for themselves. But you are to awake for righteousness. You are to make sure that in light of the coming of the Lord that you are prepared by living godly and righteously in this generation. So that if he comes early in the morning or late at night, that you are ready to go, that you, you are not to be like those foolish, foolish women who did not trim their lamps. No, you want to be ready, and you're to be ready by living righteously and godly. But because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only are you to act decisively by calling upon the Lord to save you, and live in preparedness and holiness, you are to live a life of hope. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to hope. A sober look at our society will leave us without much hope. Because even with the promise of technology, and the promise of happiness and security. Even though we enjoy unparalleled advances in science, the reality is we are no more secure or happier than generations of the past. The reality is even in an age of social media, Instagram and Twitter, we are not secure and we are not happy because we cannot eradicate the evils that stalk us. We cannot get rid of greed by being more educated. We cannot bridge the alienation in our own families. We cannot stop the coarsening of society. We cannot put violence to abeyance and we cannot we cannot preserve and protect ourselves from death. But it is in this world, filled with suffering and hardship and evil, that the believer may hope. It is in the face of human impotence that the Christian dares to hope, because our hope is not that humans can regenerate themselves. Our hope is not in the power of what men can do. Our hope is in the Lord. And that is why Paul could tell Timothy, Jesus Christ, our hope. Oscar Kuhlman, the New Testament theologian of a former generation, says that the New Testament's hope was a hope precisely in the coming of Christ. That even in this world of, 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 of sin and shame and evil, we as believers must hope. Why? Because Christ is coming. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ whom we serve stands at the beginning of history. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing that was made was made. That's what John tells us. He stands at the beginning of history. But our Lord stands at the midpoint of history. 
because all of God's revelation have been flowing to the, to the cross of Christ. The, cry, the cross of Christ stands in the gap. It stands at the heart of history. This is why we date time according to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is at the midpoint of history. It is what he does that stands like a gleaming, shining harbor in history. But Christ also stands at the end of history. He is the Lord of history, and he is the Lord of the future. It is this Lord who is coming again that gives us hope. He is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and is to come again. He's coming again. And I know that in New Testament scholarship, there has been much made about this question of the delay of the parousia. But when I hear theologians write about the delay of the parousia, in fact, some say that, that Luke was concerned about this delay of the parousia. Christ did not come back as people expected. They were pessimistic, and so he, he pushed the parousia far into the future. But there is no delay. There's no delay. In, actually, in Hebrews 10, 37, it says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. You and I have every reason to hope. Because, because you see, for us, time is not cyclical. There were people in the ancient Near Eastern world who saw time as cyclical. They, 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 they looked at time really as as one continual wheel. Life was a cycle of dying or rising and dying and rising and dying. But in New Testament terms, time is perceived as linear. It's, it's moving from a point to another point. That, that, that there is progress in time. And not only that, but time is purposive. It's moving to a goal. And the goal of history is Christ. And he says, behold, I come quickly. We need to understand that Christ is coming again. He could say to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He says, behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. He will come again to put an end to all powers and all rule and all authority. He will come to put all his enemies under his feet. He will come even to subdue death itself. He's coming to deliver the kingdom to the Father so that God would be all in all, that God would be everything to everyone. He's coming to wipe away the tears from our eyes. He's coming to put all things right. He's coming to remove and transmute our pain and our sorrow into joy. He's coming again. And you and I must, must follow him as he taught the disciples to pray. We are to pray, thy kingdom come. We are to cry to God, thy kingdom come. We are to live in, in the sight and sound of heaven. If there's any problem that we have today in the church, is that we have become so earthbound, we are almost no heavenly good. We're so anchored. But we are to live in the knowledge that our Savior is coming again.
and in the midst of our hardship and in our struggle, we know that these things are for a little while, and they're working an eternal weight of glory. Christ is coming. We are to pray, Lord, thy kingdom come. Lord, bring your kingdom to consummation. Come and take your reign. We are to say to the Lord, as we are reminded in 1 Corinthians 16, we are to say to the Lord, Maranatha, come, O Lord. O Lord, come. That's the Christian hope. That the Christ who lived and died, and the Christ who rose and ascended to heaven, is coming again. Is coming again. And we shall see him. May God grant you that as you live today, that you live your life with heaven in view. That every day when you get up, that you live with the thought that this may be my last day. Live as though today were your last day on earth. My dear friends, Jesus Christ is coming. His coming will be visible. His coming will be sudden and his coming will divide humanity. May God help you that you are found on the right side. For Jesus' sake, amen.